in a series that we've entitled Shattered, looking at the uh, lives of some pretty shattered individuals um, because of maybe circumstances of trials and tribulations, maybe because of sinful decisions they've made. Uh, the book of 1 Samuel, where we've been studying for the last couple of weeks, is chock full of, of shattered lives. And we are taking uh, really the fall a season to the first part of December uh, to look at different episodes, different scenes in the lives of those in 1 Samuel, to look at how their lives are shattered, uh, to see that we are all shattered as a result of our sin and rebellion from God and how that affects our lives on a daily basis. And also to recognize and know that God is the answer uh, to our brokenness. And uh, we started this series looking at shattered expectations through the life of uh, Hannah, uh, who was uh, a woman who struggled with infertility, also a difficult marriage, and yet God uh, was able to grow in her a heart of faith and a heart of obedience. Last week we learned a very difficult lesson about um, the role that we play as parents, and we looked at the shattered parenting style uh, of Eli the priest and how his children didn't walk with the Lord because of some lackadaisical parenting on, on the part of Eli. And today we see that, that our shattered lives can impact even how we worship. And we're going to look at a large portion of Scripture, one uh, too large for me to read for uh, our Scripture reading. And so I want to give a, a, a list of highlights that are going on in chapters 4 through 7. If you want to follow along, grab that pew Bible in the pew rack in front of you or open your Bible. In the pew Bible, you'll find it on page 228, page 200. And 28, and just follow along as I give just kind of a brief summary of what's going on. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, we find the people of God, the Israelite nation, at a place of war with their neighboring enemies, the Philistines. And what we hear is, is that Israel goes out to fight the Philistines in battle. And as they do, they lose. They lose the battle, and 4,000 of their soldiers are killed in battle. They come back from the battle, and they ask a question. They ask the question, why would God allow them to be defeated? That's maybe, I guess, a good question. They're God's chosen people. They know God uh, is is their God and on their side. And they've lost to a pagan group of people, uh, some of the enemies of God and his ways. And so they're asking the question, why in the world would this happen? Instead of asking God, and we'll talk about this in a couple moments, instead of asking God the question, they ask it amongst themselves. Why would God do this? They say, you know what, maybe we need to change our our strategy. And the decision is made that they're going to bring the Ark of the Covenant from the city of of Shiloh. They're going to take it from the temple where... um, Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are, are priests. They're going to bring those guys and bring the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant, just so you're aware, was a, was a box, in no other better terms, a box that was created out of the finest uh, material that the earth has. Uh, and it was built as a symbol of God's presence amongst the people. It, it contained things like the Ten Commandments that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai. It contained uh, a portion of manna that the Israelites had received while wandering through the, prom- or wandering through the wilderness before the Promised Land. Uh, a sampling of that manna. It also had Aaron's staff and some other of the most prized possessions of Israel's history. And they said, you know what, we're going to bring this thing, and if we bring this thing uh, into our battle, then we'll be victorious. And so they bring it, and, and through the leadership of Hophni and Phinehas, they come and they, they go once again and they fight the Philistines. And they're expecting a different outcome. But here's the problem. The only difference is the out, in the outcome is they don't lose 4,000 men, they lose 30,000 men. 
And included in that loss of life are the two lives of Hophni and Phinehas. Now, we learned last week that they were going to lose their lives on the same day. And that uh, Eli was going to grieve and cry out in anguish when he hears it. And that's exactly what happens. On, after the battle is done, a messenger comes running the entire way to explain the death of his two sons to Eli and to say, now what are we to do? Well, Eli hears this story. And Eli, being an old man, is overcome with grief. He hears that also the Ark of the Covenant has been captured, and he falls over in anguish while sitting in a chair breaking his neck, and he dies. An incredibly sad moment. Not only have the two priests of of, uh, Israel gone, now the high priest, Eli, is dead. We've lost 34,000 men in a short season of time, and it seems as if it couldn't get any worse. At the end of chapter 4, Eli's daughter-in-law, who was married to Phinehas, is about to give birth. And as she gives birth, complications take place where the baby is born, but the mom dies. In her last words before she dies, she says, The glory of the Lord has departed from Israel. And so you can't get any darker in in Israelites' history than maybe what we see in 1 Samuel chapter 4, which then turns to 1 Samuel chapter 5. And 1 Samuel chapter 5 is a a, uh, uh, story, a reminder of what transpires after the Philistines capture the Ark of the Covenant, the most prized possession uh, of the entire nation of Israel. Uh, They have it. And they recognize that it's got power. It's, there's, there's something about this Ark of the Covenant that is important. And so they recognize there's something holy about this Ark of the Covenant. And they place it uh, in the temple of their god, Dagon. And they put it into the temple, and, and, and they do so for a particular reason. And again, we'll talk about this in a moment. But they thought, if we put the Israelites' god and our best god together, we will create, if you will, a super god. And so by, by doing that, uh, we're going to become the most powerful nation because now we have not only one God, but we've got two gods, but we merge them together. Now we've got super God, if you will, and, and we will be victorious in all that we do. God's got other plans, though. When the Ark of the Covenant is placed in the Temple of Dagon, uh, overnight, the first night that, that the Ark of the Covenant resides there, uh, the statue of Dagon falls face down uh, as if worshiping at the place of the Ark of the Covenant. The priest and the Philistines come in and say, oh, whoa, this is bad press. We've got to fix this. They put the ark, or I'm sorry, the, the statue of Dagon back in his place, set him back up, and uh, they don't want to get that out because uh, that would be a really, really humiliating thing to find out that your statue of your God is now worshiping at the, um, if you will, the statue of your enemy's gods. So they go back to bed. The next night they wake up the next morning and and what happens? Dagon is back down on the ground, face down at the uh, place of the Ark of the Covenant. But this time, as if it couldn't be any worse than before, his hands have been severed from his body and and his head has been cut off. As if to say, God is, is saying, there are no other gods before me. When you mess with God and his glory, bad things happen. The Philistines learn this in, in 1 Samuel chapter 5. We learn that what begins to happen is that for the entire time that the Ark of the Covenant is in the land of the Philistines, bad things happen. 
uh, great uh, boils or, or tumors begin to grow on the people. Wherever the Ark of the Covenant would go, uh, these, these tumors uh, would, would grow and people would die to the point that the Ark of the Covenant in the land of the Philistines becomes a hot potato. We don't want it. Give it to them. They don't want it. Give it to them. And wherever it goes, calamity befalls them. Whereas then in chapter 6, the Philistines finally say, this capturing of the Ark of the Covenant has done us no good. Everywhere that we take it, calamity befalls our people. Nobody wants it. we got to figure out what to do with this, but we need to be very careful. And so meticulously in chapter 6, the Philistines work to try to figure out how do we not offend this God and give him back to his people, the Israelites. And so through the work of Israelite history, uh, through the work of their own diviners and sorcerers, they come up with a plan that they say, we are going to do all that we can to seek to not dishonor this God because this God is more powerful and, and, and far greater than anything we ever could have imagined. Let's get him back to the other side because it is doing us no good. In chapter 7, we see the Ark of the Covenant come back to the nation of Israel. Uh, people are excited to see it come back. We learn that uh, in that excitement, some men look with contempt at the Ark of the Covenant. They are laid down. They, they are killed uh, because they do not see God in his glory as something to be revered. Again, a reminder that God is serious about his glory. And then we see God's grace. Amidst the, the falling of, of two uh, men, uh, Hophni and Phinehas and the high priest Eli, Uh, we see that God has a plan uh, to redeem his people once again through the faithful and courageous leadership of Samuel the priest, an obedient priest who calls in chapter 7 the Israelites back to God to get rid of their foreign gods and to bow their knee only to the Lord. I want to read from that part of the passage this morning and use that as kind of uh, our blessing this morning of what we are called to learn about. Here's what verse 3 of chapter 7 says. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord, return with all your heart. Then put away all the foreign gods and the Azeroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals, that's one false god, and the Azeroth, that's another false god, and they served the Lord only. Let's go ahead and ask God's blessing on our time. Father God, as we come to a large portion of Scripture, we are reminded of two truths this morning. First of all, Lord, we are reminded that you are God alone and that you do not want, deserve um, any competition. You are the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And, And Lord, we need to recognize this morning that any competition that we place in your arena is an affront to you and will only bring your anger and judgment And so, Lord, I pray that we would look at our own uh, idols and that we would see uh, if those idols um, that are in our midst, uh, that we've dealt dealt with them in a proper way. Number two, Lord, I I think of amidst this text uh, the casualness of your people when it comes to worshiping you. Lord, they thought that they, that they could direct your paths, that they could tell you what to do, that they could use you in such a way that would gain them something for themselves. Lord, I pray that today, again, knowing that you are God alone, that we would not be so presumptuous to think 
that we can tell you what to do or use you for our own advancement. So teach us humility, Lord. Teach us repentance today. And call us to a return back to you so that we may find your blessing, that we may find your protection, that we may find um, that our worship is true to your glory, that we may honor you in all that we say and do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The story is told of a woman who was serving at her job as a flight attendant. And she enjoyed her job, but one, one flight had become very difficult for her. At the front of the plane, uh, there was a man who was making all kinds of inappropriate advancements towards her. She didn't like it, and so she asked to go to the back side of the plane. And wouldn't you know it, when she was assigned to the back side of the plane, uh, there was another man who was making all kinds of flirtatious advancements towards her as well. And she was just really uh, unhappy with this, uh, that she really just thought, you know, I'm just going to get through my job, get through this flight, and everything will be fine. So she had to go back up to the front of the plane, and when she did, the guy, knowing that the plane was going to land soon, knew that his opportunity was coming to an end, and so he got really bold. He took a key to his apartment and wrote on a piece of paper the address of the apartment and, and with a note saying, see you later tonight, with a little smiley face. The, the lady didn't know what to do. She just was so tired of these stupid advancements that she came up with an idea. Wise beyond her years, she walked to the back end of the plane and handed, with a smile on her face, to the other flirtatious man, the key and the note, and says, I'll see you tonight. Can you imagine the disappointment at that apartment later that night? Well, I can assure you that none of us would put ourselves in that kind of situation. I pray that that isn't the case. It is a great reminder for us of how we treat God at times. It's a reminder of what we learn in our scripture this morning that when we as Christians seek for God to show up in our lives and he doesn't, we are quick to ask the question, God, why weren't you there? And we are quick to blame in our disappointment God instead of asking the question as those men should have asked in their disappointment Maybe our invitation was inappropriate. You see, the people of God wanted God in their midst, but they went all about the wrong way in trying to get it to happen. Does that make sense? They wanted God, but they didn't think that they needed to respond to God, invite God in the way that would be coming of who he was. And they missed an opportunity. And as a result of that, they were disappointed. This morning we come to a text that reminds us that the way we approach God will determine how God responds to us. And what we're going to learn is God's response is one of anger, one of judgment, and one of avenging his glory because the people of God treated their invitation of him into their lives with contempt. We call that, as a preaching team, shattered religion. Shattered religion. Write this down because we need a definition. I didn't get it into the notes ahead of time. But let's define what shattered religion is. Shattered religion is the belief, it's the belief that a symbol or activity of faith, a symbol or activity of faith, 
will bring about God's blessing and presence automatically. It's a symbol or activity of faith that brings with it the presence of God or the blessing of God automatically. Meaning, I do this, whatever you want to fill in the blank, and we'll talk about that in a moment, and God will do that. If your Christian life is, if I do this, this, and this, then God will do this, this, and that, then you are probably veering into shattered religion and not true religion. So how do we know if our faith or our religion is true and right? We've got to look at a bad example of it. And the bad example is in chapter 4. In chapter 4, the people of God are wondering, is God on our side? Is God fighting for us? And we will see that he's not. And the question is, why? It's a question that they themselves are going to ask in verse 3 of chapter 4. Why did God allow this thing to happen? In fact, they even blame God. Why would God cause us to be defeated? So they can't understand it, and they're trying to figure it out. So, So what does this religion look like that they're a part of? Notice I want you to see four things this morning. The characteristics, the characteristics of shattered religion. What does it look like? First of all, I want you to notice that shattered religion usually involves leaders without character. It usually involves leaders without character. Notice in verse 4 of chapter 4. We are told in this, after this battle that the people ask, you know, in essence, what do we need to do? They say, well, hey, we need to bring the Ark of the Covenant. That's our, that's our mascot. That's our our most prized possession. It's our good luck charm. We're going to bring that. And who have they talked with about it? Verse 4 says that there are two guys that are at the center of this thinking. Those two guys' names are Hophni and Phinehas. Who are Hophni and Phinehas? They are the two guys we learned about last week, the sons of Eli. They're the priests of God who the Bible says in chapter 2 are worthless men. These guys that are leading the charge are known by all of Israel to be menaces to society, to be sexually immoral men, men who, instead of serving the people of God and honoring God, treated the people of God and God himself with utter contempt. These two men are the ones who are leading the charge, saying, this is what we should do. How do we defeat our enemies, we will do this with God on our side. Had they asked God? No, they couldn't. Why couldn't they? Because in chapter 2 it says they did not know the Lord. And so we've got two corrupt, two worthless men leading the people of God. All throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament, it makes it abundantly clear if you are going to serve as one of God's leaders over God's people, then you must be a person of character. The New Testament speaks of elders, the the men who are called to lead in God's local church, like, like Village Bible Church, that the leaders of the church are to be men, the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, they are to be men who are above reproach. It doesn't mean they should be perfect. No man can be perfect. Only our Savior is perfect. But godliness is the standard. Now, how are we to know whether our our leaders are godly or not? Paul tells Timothy there are three ways that you can, can see that. First of all, 
Are they spiritually men of character? The Bible says that they are to be above reproach. They are to be mature men of faith. And so the first question you need to ask of any spiritual leader you have is, are they spiritually people of character? Do they love the Lord? Have they walked with the Lord for a long time? Does it look as if they've walked around the schemes of the devil long enough not to fall to his trappings? The second thing that they tell us that we should look for, Paul tells Timothy, is we are to look for men who are not just men of character spiritually, but men who are of character domestically domestically. So Paul says, hey, they've got to be a husband of of one wife. Literally, it means to be a one-woman man. What it means is that they literally have eyes for only one, their wife. Now, we know Hophni and Phinehas, they're not spiritually mature men. They don't know the Lord. Strike one. Strike two, They are not men who are above reproach sexually. They're sleeping around with women at the entrance of the temple. Step number three, we have to ask the question. So that's strike two. So the third step we have to ask is, how are they socially? What I mean by that is, how does the world see them? How do others see them? Do they see them as temperate men? Men who are lovers of money, men who are lovers of themselves, arrogant individuals? Or do they see them as men who love God, who love their family, and who love the people of God, uh, unbelievers in the world, that they are, are people who have good reputation, both of the insiders within the church and outsiders who are in the world? You can't bring on an elder whose workplace says that guy's a jerk. You can't do that. What good is that? What testimony is that? He must have a good reputation with those on the outside and those on the inside. So we go, and again, strike one, they, weren't, they did not know the Lord. They were spiritually corrupt men. Number two, they were sexually corrupted because of their, their acts of, of immorality. Number three, all of Israel in chapter two says that they knew and were aware of the terrible lives that these men live. Strike one, strike two, strike three. This group of God's people are being led by worthless men. And we have to ask the question this morning, why in the world would we follow such men? Now you may be quick to say, well, I would never follow such men. I would never allow such a thing. And we need to recognize there was something inherent within the lives of Hophni and Phinehas that continued to draw people back to worship there, that they overlooked that sin. And I will tell you what normally happens within our day and age today is charisma, great giftings that people can speak well. And not too long ago, in fact, uh, and, and I don't bring this as a way to uh, be an expose, but an example that it happens, and it's alive and well in our own churches today, uh, a pastor, a very well-known pastor, uh, whose name will remain nameless, um, came out at the beginning of the summer, around June, and confessed to a, an affair that he was having. He was well-known conference speaker, radio speaker, wrote many books and all of that, and, and it came out that he was having an affair. In his uh, sharing of the affair, he said, the reason why I had the affair was my wife was having an affair. So we've got a broken-down family family we need to be praying for, a family that needs God's love and God's grace and truth brought into their lives. 
the elders being wise in the church. It was a mega church. The, 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 the elders say, hey, you, you can't continue in an affair and, and be a pastor. You, you need to step away. We're going to ask you to resign. He resigns. That's right. Good first step. A, a pastor cannot be in an inappropriate relationship and continue to preach. That's, that's not a good thing to do. So then uh, in August, he files for divorce, says the relationship is irreparable, um, and uh, uh, irreparable harm has been done. It can't be repaired, so, so we're going to divorce. Now this is where the mistake comes. All of that, again, I want to extend God's grace and mercy. Three miles down the road, three miles down the road is one of the largest evangelical churches in Florida. September 2nd, they voted and affirmed that same man to be their pastor. There's a problem. Now, we could talk about, listen, we can talk about can a man, a pastor who has fallen be restored? And I think, yeah, they can be. We all can be restored by God's grace and mercy. But I'm going to tell you, it's going to take some time. And I will tell you, the Bedal family has suffered groundings longer than two weeks for lesser crimes. Okay? Now, why? Why would a church do that? Because gifting and charisma and popularity are things that we say, you know what, character isn't as important as, as that great charisma. We, we need that. That guy will help us grow our church and all of that. Listen, shattered religion begins when you start putting in uh, not only broken individuals, but unqualified or disqualified individuals to lead. And if you're following disqualified leaders, you will no doubt have your faith become in some way, shape, or form defective as a result of their leading. That's why it is so very important that we look at those who are leading and ask the question, can I follow them? Now, before we think that it's just bad leadership, let's recognize you cannot have bad leadership without bad followership, right? A man who is leading and nobody is following is a man who's simply going on a walk. You know that, right? If nobody's following that leader, he's by himself. He's just out for a walk. So we have to have uh, someone following these bad leaders, and we do, the people of Israel. You see, the people of Israel are people who are making wrong choices. They're making bad choices, And so it's not just that Eli's sons are the ones to blame. We've got people who are following. They're asking the question of these guys, what should we do? Now, who who cares if you're sleeping around Eli's sons? Who cares if you don't know the Lord? Who cares that that you're menaces to everything that, that goes on around the temple? Who cares about all that? You just tell us what we need to do. It seems a bit odd that these people would be um, ignorant enough of the fact that these two men don't know the Lord, but they're going to seek to know what God says about their circumstances through these two men. They're making bad choices. Now, now why does that happen? Why does it happen? Because by nature we are dumb people. Did you know this last week, October 7th, um, a, a church from the East Coast announced to the world and all of its followers that God was going to destroy the world. Did you know that? We, we passed another one of those. Maybe you heard about it. I, I know uh, the unbelieving world loves this when we do this, right? They love it. I saw it on USA Today. They took time in the, in the religious section. Another doomsday prophecy, will it be true or not? As if they know already the answer. And the doomsday prophecy was that on October 7th, 
the world because of a bunch of numbers that are added up together, because of the calendar that is embedded into the scriptures itself, we could know that when Jesus was going to return and destroy the world. Now, I, I was... I was working on Wednesday, and I was looking forward to, I don't mean to bring this up, but to watching the big baseball game, and I didn't want to listen to it. I wanted to watch it, so I was DVRing it, and I said, what am I going to pass my time with? And I said, i got to listen. i got to listen to the guy's final message to his followers. i got to listen to this. I mean, my goodness, what does a Bible study sound like when you know that you've got the answer to the end of the world, and, and what might that look like? And so I listened to the 35-minute uh, message that he gave, and as I was listening, I'm saying, who in the world would believe this guy? He's using Scripture all over the place for his own desires and his own wants. Yes, before I forget, yes, we should look forward to the coming of the Lord. Yes, Yes, we should even hasten its day, the Scripture says. But the Bible does not say, really quickly, the Bible says no one knows the hour or the day, except for those who have found the embedded Bible code that tells us the hour and day. I know that's confusing, okay? That Scripture never comes up in his Bible study. But he, with meticulousness, uses the Bible to be able to say, we can use the Bible to find out when the, when the world is going to end. And I sat there, and I, and I looked at my phone, and I saw how many people had listened to it, tens of thousands. you got to be kidding me. There are that many people, and I, I want to give maybe a thousand of them are like me, laughing the entire time that it's going on. But there are followers, and what is creating it? It is when we go and we put ourselves around teachers who have shattered religion. It doesn't take much to look in America today and see that there's shattered religion. And this shattered religion is filling some of the biggest buildings that churches can, can be contained in. Some of our largest churches in America are, are being led by people who are filling their pockets Millions upon millions of dollars are going into their own accounts, fleecing the people of God out of this idea that your words of faith will produce wealth. And I want you to know that the shattered religion is being seen all around, and people are buying into it. The largest church in America is a church of shattered religion. And Christians are watching that and and believing that, that as if your words, if you speak positive words of faith, you won't have health problems, you won't have money problems, and you'll be wise beyond your years. And the problem is, just like the children of Israel, we have people who are making unwise decisions as to who they follow. So these guys follow. They follow, and and what happens? They don't lose 4,000, they lose 30,000. And the devastation that must have come. The devastation that must have have been there. But I want you to notice a couple things about this characteristic. Notice the flawed conviction. The flawed conviction that comes. In verse 3, they're going to ask a question. Why do we lose the battle? Why did we lose this battle? The flawed conviction isn't the question. The flawed conviction is the question and how it's asked. First of all, the question itself is flawed. God, why did you make us lose this battle? Notice in verse, notice in verse 3. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? God, it's your fault we lost. Now they should be asking the question, what have we done to offend our God? What have we done that God has allowed this trial in our life, and what do we need to do to fix it? Now you say, Tim, they're asking the right question, but here's the thing. 
they really aren't asking the right question because notice who they're not asking it of. They're not asking God. Nowhere does it say, and they turned to God and said, Lord, why did you allow this to happen? They asked the question amongst themselves. They asked the question amongst worthless men. And the answer is the reason why is we didn't bring out our lucky charm, the Ark of the Covenant. We didn't bring it and, and place it before our soldiers in battle. And, and so they have this false conviction that if we bring a tchotchke, if you will, some worthless item, if you will, uh, that has no value outside of what God has placed on it, if we bring something to the table, then God will have to respond. And he doesn't. Because the box that the Ark of the Covenant is is just a box. Without God's presence, it's a box full of relics. With God's presence, it's the most powerful um, tool because the most powerful God of the universe is present there. They miss that. They bring the box. They don't bring God. And some of us, listen, some of us want the box of God instead of God himself. And so what we begin to do is we have these flawed convictions about what we're a part of. If we just bring uh, God's box, then everything will be okay instead of inviting God into our battles. Notice the faith without a center. There's a faith without a center. In verse 5, we see the ark is brought into the camp, and what do the people do? They cheer. They celebrate as if the mascot, you know, yesterday, all kinds of football games happened yesterday, and no doubt, at the beginning of the game, in every one of these games, the home team will run out of the tunnel, and who will lead them? The mascot. And what they have done is they have created a mascot out of the Ark of the Covenant. So the mascot shows up into the town, and they all start cheering. They're all excited. Listen to me. If they understood that the Ark of the Covenant was a symbol representing the presence of God in their lives that is there each and every day, they wouldn't have celebrated. They would have gotten on their knees and begged for mercy. They saw it as something that was to be cheered because this box This thing is going to help us in our hour of need instead of a reminder of their unfaithfulness before a holy God. They've got no center. Here's the thing. We live in a world where people say they are people of faith. All the time. I'm sure you've heard this as I've heard it. I'm a person of faith. And the question is, what is your faith in? Is your faith in God or is your faith in yourself? They had created an in-between. It wasn't in God. It wasn't in themselves. It was in this thing, this religious item of theirs that had some real symbolism of God. But instead of inviting God into the midst, they just wanted the symbol. And they thought the symbol could work. And we have churches that are filled with people buying into symbols instead of a Savior. So what happens? There's a cost that takes place. Notice the cost of shattered religion. What happens when we put our faith in things other than God? Or when we use God as a means to our end? Three things take place. Number one, we trade true faith. We trade true faith for superstition. With the athletic world, you will see all sorts of superstition. Um... When the Blackhawks are in a playoff run, what don't they do? Help me out. They don't shave. They don't shave their beards because growing long beards is going to help you put a black hockey puck into a goal, right? Well, that's what superstition tells you. Michael Jordan, 
great Chicago Bull player, probably the greatest player to ever play basketball, had a superstition that he needed to wear his North Carolina Tar Heel blue shorts underneath his Bulls uniform every game of his entire career. That's crazy, okay? Wade Boggs. Wade Boggs, a great player for um, the Boston Red Sox over almost nearly a 20-year career. Listen to this, 162 games in a year. Before every game, he ate the same dinner, chicken. That's a lot of chicken, right? That's a lot of chicken. I don't know what 162 games over a 20-year career, that's a whole lot of chicken, okay? And I don't know how many different ways you can make chicken. That's a lot of chicken, okay? Why? Because of superstition. At some point, he ate chicken and had a great game and said, why would I change it? So let's just keep, the, keep it going. And you sit there and we laugh and we say, how dumb. And we see it. We see the, the sign of the cross done before a guy gets into the batter's box. We see uh, men who will, who will uh, put the sign of the cross in, uh, in the dirt. I've seen that happen as one's getting up to bat. All kinds of, of crazy uh, things like that. And we say, well, that, that would never happen. Here, here's the problem. As Christians... We do it, we just have a little more religiosity to it. If I take this little wafer and drink this little cup, I'm all right with God. If I go into the waters of baptism, if someone poured some water on my head when I was a baby, then I'm going to heaven. doesn't matter if I'm obedient. doesn't matter if I love the Lord with all my heart or not. Someone got me wet when I was a little kid, and I'm all good. I prayed a prayer. I'm not walking with the Lord, but I prayed a prayer. I walked an aisle. I, I, I'm in. I'm in. God, God loves me. I attend church every Sunday, and God is for me because I attend church every Sunday. And so God isn't going to allow anything bad to happen. We've got superstitions of our, our own, and we mock those who, who have other superstitions. Let me tell you, superstitions of others are always fun to watch, but we don't want people to mess with ours. Let me tell you, just, just recently... And, and if this person's in this place, I share this as a way of, of rebuke as I did that day. But uh, someone came up and said, Pastor, Pastor, I've got to share with you. God is so good. God is so wonderful. He, he helped me in my hour of need. I had a decision I need to make, and God spoke to me. And I always have to stop someone and say, did God really speak to you? Did he? That doesn't happen very often these days. Okay? Did you hear the, from the Lord? And she said, well, I felt it in my spirit. Okay, all right, you felt it in your spirit. Okay, I'll give you that. Here's how God was going to answer my prayer. I had a decision I needed to make, and God told me to close my eyes, grab my Bible, and open. And when I looked down, the answer was going to be in that verse. Now, listen, that's not superstition from some other church. It's happening here, okay? And I had to stop and say, I sure hope it said that the one who has sinned will surely die didn't come up. You see, that's what we do, you know, right? We don't like that verse that comes up. Okay, I'll do it again, as if we're playing Russian roulette with God. Let me tell you something. God doesn't speak that way. God speaks through the whole counsel of his word. Listen, God isn't about playing games. God gives us symbols. God gives us things that will aid in our holiness. Listen, write this down. This is very important. Shattered religion. If, if you're having trouble understanding what it is, listen, this is the best way to put it, and if, it, if it's bad, then you can blame me. This is, I got it from myself. Here's, here's what it is. Shattered religion is when you seek for the help of God without seeking his holiness. Does that make sense? 
So if you're using prayer, and, and teenagers, you're using your prayer, you're in your history class, you haven't, you haven't studied a lick of the history exam uh, for the exam, nothing, and you throw up a prayer, oh Lord, I know you're a good God, and I know you're a great God, and, and Lord, I need a real help here. I don't have an idea of who Roosevelt is compared to Benjamin Franklin or anything, but because I'm praying, you're going to help me pass the test. Let me assure you, I've prayed those prayers. Let me assure you what happens. You do not make the honor roll, okay? But what you're doing is you're taking a noble thing, a good thing many times, and you're taking it and you're saying, I can maneuver this thing in such a way, I can manipulate this thing in such a way that if I want something, God will do it. What you've done is you've put God into a bottle and you've made him your genie. And what the Israelites had done is they said, you know what, we don't want God, we just want some of his power. We don't want God in all of his holiness, we just need his little box, his box will help us save the day. And and here's the problem. When you put your faith and trust in that, shattered religion can't save you. It can't save you. I cannot imagine how many people are going to stand before Jesus Christ and say, I am a follower of yours. And Jesus is going to say, really? Because I don't know you. Oh, yeah, I went to that church down there. I got baptized. I walked an aisle. And Jesus will say, as he does in Matthew chapter 7, depart from me, I never knew you. You see, this is a reminder that that when we say we are people of God, then God's got to be in charge, we're not. That we're going to understand that we have to take all of God, not, not not a part of God. You see, the problem was they liked the idea of God, but they forgot to invite them into their lives. The Apostle Paul says we must, be aware, we must beware of having an appearance of godliness while denying its power. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, hey, Timothy, be careful of those guys who talk a big game, who, who, who talk about all kinds of myths and all kinds of genealogies, but the power of God is not changing their life. They don't have me in their lives. Notice it shrinks God in his glory. When we do that, it shrinks God in his glory. There's two pictures of that in our text. You see, long before the coexist bumper stickers, the Philistines had this idea that if we were to take not just one God, but multiple gods and merge them together, we could create a super God. And so what they did was when they got the Ark of the Covenant, they knew this was a religious box, They knew, you could tell, it was made with the finest of materials. It had cherubim, angels, angelic hosts built upon it. I mean, it was a beautiful, marvelous-looking piece of of, uh, of, uh, craftsmanship. And so they see it, and they say, what do we do with it? And the Philistines say, hey, let's put it in the temple where we put our other gods. And let's put them with our temp- in the temple of Dagon, one of our most powerful gods, the god of fish or the god of the sea. And so what they do is they take the Ark of the Covenant and they place it on the same level as their other gods. I want to remind you this morning, when we talk about the American religiosity, it will be said over and over again that religion in America is dying. I want to say absolutely not. It is not. Religion in America is alive and well today. Let me tell you what you could say at your workplace and people would applaud you. I believe in Jesus is one of many ways to God. 
You got it. Amen to that. I believe Jesus is, is one of many. He's my way to God. And so my Islamic friend, Muhammad, is your way to God. My Hindu friend, the teachings of Hinduism, is your way to God. Atheist, your whole fight with yourself, that's your way to God or no God at all. We all got our paths. We're walking up the same mountain. Nobody is going to be offended when you say Jesus is one of many. When you say Jesus is the one and only, that's when they want to beat you up. That's when they want to cut you down. You see, religion is alive and well today. Shattered religion that devalues God. The Philistines said this, we're going to put God with our we're going to put this God with all our other gods. God says you got another thing coming. Dagon, man, Dagon has two bad nights. The statue of Dagon falls down as if prostrate before um, before the Lord, before the ark of the covenant. That's not good enough. They put him back up. Here's always the thing. Always be careful. You know you're part of shattered religion when you've got to put your God back on his pedestal. Does that make sense? Let's get our God back up on his pedestal. Let's help him back up, okay? There's a problem with that. Because if you're helping your God, can you imagine? That's the 911 life medical bracelet alert thing. I've fallen and I can't get up, okay? It's not a good God to follow if you have got to help your God back up. So they help him back up. They get him back up to the, to the place where he needs to be. The next night, same thing happens, but God has even more of a sense of humor. Severs his head and cuts off his hands. He's an impotent God. He's got nothing going for him. This God is, is and they say, hey, we got to fix this. Can't have the Ark of the Covenant keep doing this. You know, so this is going to make our God look like a weak God, a broken God. So what does he do? He sends them out. And we're going to learn what, what transpires here in a moment. But what happens is, is be careful. Shattered religion always, listen, always tries to put God at the same level as everyone else, as other gods. Let me tell you, this is the teaching of Oprah Winfrey today. I know some of you love Oprah because of her great programs. And let me tell you something. She's a false teacher who continues to tell in interviews that Jesus is one of many ways to God. She's doing nothing different than what the Philistines did in the temple of Dagon. And we got to be careful of it. It shrinks God's glory. The second area that it shrinks is, remember, <clears throat> Eli's daughter-in-law is about to give birth. And in this day of giving birth, she learns that on the same day her husband dies, and the same day she learns her father-in-law is, is going to die, uh, and the same day she's going to learn that thousands of men are going to die. It's a bad day for her, and amidst her giving birth to a son, she dies. And her last words in the text, in verse 22 of chapter 4, she says, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God, uh, the ark of God has been captured. That sounds like a pretty good statement. Here's the problem. This is her rationale. The box of God is no longer in our possession. Thus, God's glory is no longer in this place. Beware when things of God represent God's glory instead of God's glory alone. Be careful that when certain things don't go the way you want them to, that you don't determine that God now is no longer on his throne. The Ark of the Covenant had been captured. Listen, and God was just getting started showing his supremacy. God didn't sit there and go, uh-oh, 
are my box. My box is in the hands of other people. Oh no, what can I do? I can't do anything now. I'm captured. I can't. And God says, watch this. And so what does God do? Starts knocking over statues. That's first thing. Second thing he does is wherever the Ark of the Covenant went, boils or sores or tumors started to grow on the people. God says, you can't mess with my glory. You can't shrink my glory. And so I'm going to show you my glory in a powerful way. Wherever that box goes, you're going to see the hand of Almighty God and his vengeance upon the people who continue to try to reduce it. And so we need to recognize this morning that God's glory is not in the things of this world, even in the symbols that we have before us. God's presence isn't in water that we revere as being something holy. God's presence isn't found in a wafer or a thing of juice. God's presence is larger than all of that. While those things may point to a, a picture of who God is or how he deals with his people, they themselves are not the presence of God. This is where we, and I just with all due respect, this is where we differ with Roman Catholics. Roman Catholics will set up a tabernacle for bread because they will say in that bread is the presence of Almighty God in body and blood, the incarnate God in, in bread form. And we would say, no, Roman Catholics, symbol, the presence of Almighty God, Jesus Christ, is sitting on the right hand of the Father, not going back to the cross. And so be careful when we start merging symbols to be the presence of God instead of God himself. That's why we can worship God in all places, because God's presence is everywhere. He's not just in church He's not just in symbols, but he's everywhere. He, he resides over the, the land and the sea. And he resides through his spirit in you and me. Be careful. So how do we fix it? There are corrections that we need to make. What are the corrections? In chapter 6, we see the Philistines seek to alleviate their suffering and to stop the trials upon them. I want you to notice that they try to right the ship. I want you to notice the contrast. First Samuel is full of contrast. Remember last week, bad sons of Eli, good son Samuel. Remember that? Eli's son's doing bad things, but Samuel, everybody loves him. God loves him. He's honoring God in all that he does. Contrast, contrast, contrast. Contrast in 1 um, in Samuel 1. Hannah, a faithful woman, has no children. Contrast, Paniah, an unfaithful and, and ungodly woman, multiple children. Contrast, contrast, contrast in the book of 1 Samuel. Here's the contrast of the Philistines, pagan people, and the Israelites. The Israelites play games with God's box, okay? The Ark of the Covenant. They don't revere it. And the Philistines do. They recognize before the people of God, this box signifies the presence of Almighty God, and this God is a serious God. We better deal with it seriously. It's not the, if you will, the Christians that figure it out first. It's the pagans. The pagans get it. God is not to be played with. God is not to be something that's trifled with. God is serious. And so they say, okay, diviners, they go to all their smart theologians, if you will, and they say, hey, we don't know this God very well. You've got to help us figure it out. In chapter 6, they start saying, well, hey, the Egyptians ran into this problem. So they start studying the Scripture. They start studying Israeli history, and they say, hey, 
The Egyptians ran into this. We need to be very careful how we respond. We must do it in a way that is humble and is contrite. And so they get a couple cows that have never been hooked up to a cart before. Um, They get a cart. They put the Ark of the Covenant on a cart. And they say, hey, God, wherever you want to send these cows, you send them. We want your, your box to go back to the right place. And so we're putting it in your hands. You do the leading. You do the guiding. We don't want you to come down on us anymore. And so what do we see? Notice four things that help correct a shattered faith. Number one, a recognition that God is not to be trifled with. The Philistines got it. And some of us this morning are playing games with God. You're playing the game, if I do this, God, you have to do that. Listen, God doesn't have to do anything for you. He doesn't have to do anything for me. And you and I need to recognize that. We need to recognize that he's God, you're not. Number two, it means uh, revering him. There needs to be a proper reverence. Sadly, the Israelites don't see this first, but the Philistines do. And they recognize they're playing games with God. And we need to recognize that this morning as well. Is God our one and only? Is God the most powerful God of all of the world? Is he the one that has invited us into a relationship with him that's called us to obedience? When obedience isn't something that we think is, if we think obedience is optional, then we have ceased to recognize that God is all-powerful. Because if God is all-powerful, my only job is to obey him and do what he says. Because he's it. He's everything. It leads to repentance. After three chapters of missing it, God is gracious. Listen, God is always gracious, even in his discipline. God calls and raises up Samuel in chapter 7. And Samuel, as a faithful priest, calls the people back to God. Notice what it involves. If you're involved in shattered religion, notice what God says. If you're going to return to the Lord, return with your all, all your heart. You can't make it a half priority. It's got to be a total priority. It's going to mean putting away foreign gods, verse 3 says. And to direct your heart to the Lord and serve him alone. And the people of Israel, they get it and they say, we don't want to sin against the Lord anymore. We've seen the calamity that fell upon the Philistines. And we now recognize that God, as he disciplines the Philistines, may also discipline us. And so they plead later in chapter 7 with Samuel and they say, don't let this happen. Tell God that we're sorry. Tell God that we want to do what is right. And they begin to do it. And God delivers them once and for all from the Philistines. They're no longer having to wage war for for some time under Samuel's leadership. Notice that it involves repentance, but also a remembrance. Here's, Here's what God does. Remember, God is a teacher. And God says, you have taken symbols and you've turned symbols into good luck charms. And God uses an example of a symbol. Notice in verse 12, they've prayed, they've sought out the Lord, And they've defeated the Philistines. And in verse 12, listen to what it says. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mitzvah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not enter again the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the day of Samuel. So here's the thing. God says, 
Symbols, listen, are okay. Symbols are okay when they point us to a greater understanding of who God is and what God wants. That's why communion is so great. That's why baptism is so great. They are pictures of a greater spiritual truth. That we die in the grave as baptism teaches. They die as we die in our sin. We are raised as Christ was raised out of the grave into the newness of life. The old is gone, the new has come. What a great picture using one of the most abundant resources that the world has. God is a smart teacher. And God takes a rock and he says, I know you blew it with the Ark of the Covenant. Symbols alone don't save. But what symbols do is they remind us, they keep us in remembrance of this truth. God is always with us. He will help us. But the only way he will be with us and that he will help us is when God's people bow the knee and in a spirit of repentance and contrite hearts, we give back to God the glory that is due his name. And so that's going to mean this week, how do we apply this? Stop playing games with God. See the seriousness of God and his glory and do as the Israelites finally did. Walk in accordance with his word. And when you do, God says he will never leave you nor forsake you. And to me, that's good enough for me. And I want to do that and I'm going to strive and I pray that you will strive through the Holy Spirit's help to that end. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for your word. And there's a lot of scripture there with so many other incredible truths And yet, Lord, we are focused in on this issue of shattered religion. And Lord, we confess our shattered religion. It's easy for us to go and look at at the other brokenness of of others. And so, Lord, we, we, we give that to you to judge and to work through. But we know that we have our own superstitions. We know how we try to manipulate you. How we try to use holy activities to, to, in essence, move you as if we can tell you where to go or what to do. And so, Lord, we confess that before you. We confess that that comes out of a, a, a people of pride who think we know better than you do. And so, Lord, I pray for us as a people, and I pray that we would bow uh, to your perfection and to your glory and, and to your power to see you as the great God you are. And because of that, to respond in light of your glory and greatness. Not try to move you as if you're a human being that we can sway. Thank you for this reminder of what can happen when we try to order you around to meet our desires. And remind us as as those desires come up this week that, that, that we would place them under your Um, divine control and leading. Lord, I'm so thankful for Jesus Christ as as I think about this. I'm so thankful that though he being God, he lived a life that we are called to live, a life of faithfulness that says, not my will, but your will be done. And so Lord, whatever we face today, whatever comes our way this week, that we would seek to do as Christ did, and that is to honor you and to honor your will over our own. It's there, Lord, that we will receive your blessing. It's there we'll receive your um, good pleasure. It's there, Lord, that we will learn 
for the good and pleasing will of our God in heaven. So Lord, I thank you for this. I thank you for the patience and, and endurance of your people to sit under your teaching this morning and now to go and apply it. Now, Lord, send us off in fellowship with one another. Send us off that we can be a light in a world of darkness in this week to come. We love you and we thank you for it. In Christ's name we pray, amen.